Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 281 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! Thanks for joining us in this kind of rainy June, the time I'm sort of recording this introduction so and releasing this show. So yeah, thanks for downloading. In this episode, I'll talk to Alex Canaro-Saturu and Tom Jones of Polygon Treehouse about their adventure game, Rookie. So, without further ado, let us... Move swiftly on to me from the past, about six weeks ago. Chris, from the past, if you'd be so kind, thank you. Tom and Alex, please Hello. tell us. Hi, who are you, hey. and what do you both do? So uh, I'm Alex. Alex Canaris and Tiriu, and uh, I guess I come from a character animation background. Uh, one of the co-founders of. Uh, the indie studio Polygon Treehouse, along with with Tom. Um, yeah, we're making a game called Rookie, and um, I've known Tom for for quite a long time since university. And uh, yeah, in making this indie game, which is an adventure game, we're uh, yeah, I take care of all the character art and the animation stuff, along with a few other bits and bobs. Hello, I am Tom, who Alex mentioned. So. Yeah, with the co-founders, I take care of the environment, world-building side, and a lot of the design work in the game. So, uh, yeah, between us, we handle a lot of the game content. Uh, previously, we were at Sony working for PlayStation and Guerrilla Games. That's kind of where we learned our craft. And then what, three years ago now, we, we decided to start our own thing, our own adventure, and started making adventure games. Smooth segue there. Uh, and Rookie has come from that. So nice. That's where Wonderful introduction. Thank you both. Um, we did kind of fly straight into it. Uh, the intros are done pre-recorded. It's fine after the show. So we just we go flying in. It's great. So I didn't mention that in the virtual green room. Sorry, everyone. But never mind. I should, I should have done. Thought we unawares. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so the second question uh, is uh, I like this one it can go as long or as short as it can be 
and we're going to do it in, in, in order, so sort of Alex and, and, and Tom. Um, how do you do make a start making flashy lighty video games? How do we get our start? Well, yeah. uh, when did you start? Yeah, so, we, so yeah, we both studied, um, so we hadn't met before at university, and we both uh, studied at the National Centre for Computer Animation, which is in Bournemouth. Um, and that was a quite a broad course that covered uh, not just art and animation, but also lots of the, like programming and maths and curves and uh, you know a lot of the, the foundations of stuff you need for, for 3D graphics. And so we met there, and as I think it was our in our final year, they would have some companies from industry set uh, come and set projects. Like masterclass projects and Sony Cambridge, as it was at the time, came to set a, a brief which was to design, model and animate, uh, uh, place, yeah, like PlayStation 2 spec character. That was the kind of console at the time. And so we both did that, um, we both did that brief. It was one we both uh, gravitated towards. You know, I made a trainee witch doctor and Tom made some kind of drunk cowboy, if I remember. Trying to do Scottish, you just, uh... <laughs> You just added that to him with your bias. Uh, uh, he wore a kilt. It was like a. He was inspired by Saint of Killers from Preacher, so, but with the the kilt. It was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and then uh, after, obviously, Sony quite liked our work, and when we were looking for jobs uh, afterwards, we both offered uh, starting positions. You know, junior artists, me working in characters and animation, and Tom working in environments at the, at the Cambridge studio. Um, yeah, so uh, I think Tom was reasonably local to the area before I kind of moved to Cambridge and been here ever since. And then we, yeah, spent, yeah, over 14 years, I think, uh, with with Sony and its various forms in Cambridge uh, before starting our own thing. Right. That's that's quite interesting. Um, we have some guests on that come on that have been working on like 30, 40 years and never, there was no course of any kind <laughs> um, you know they, all the, the only com- courses there were is computer science which really wasn't <laughs> it's, it's kind of a means to an end it's not really <laughs> what you needed to know uh, and it's lovely to see you know you, you've actually went through the, the Sony I'm just going to use the word machine but that's wrong there's more to it than that but you went through <laughs> Sony and they certainly nurtured you uh, to, to the point where you thought I, yes, this is great but I want to do this and you yeah. aren't there in the environment. So, okay, that's great, but you're going to have to do it not here. You probably came to the conclusion. No one probably ever said that to you, but you realised, maybe, that you realised, oh, I want to do this. Like, yeah, I'm looking like to say we, um, what's interesting in some ways is kind of come full circle and gone back to our kind of roots where we started at Sony with, with the roles we had. And one of the nice things of Sony when we first joined was, um, you know, the, the roles tend to be quite diverse. So, you know, if you're doing environments, you do some kind of animation on, you know, environmental set pieces and potentially some character stuff as well and texturing and modeling. So it's really broad. I think the same is true for character stuff. So we actually learned quite a broad set of skills then. And then, you know, obviously got wider game experience across multiple projects and all that goes with that. Uh, and I think we, we, had some really good experiences and it's really exciting being a part of projects. But as anyone from a, who's worked in a AAA studio will tell you, there's, you know, good things and bad things about that. Uh, and I think for us, like you say, where, where we were in our 
career, we felt there was an opportunity to go and do something that uh, we could kind of own, be a bit more uh, closer to, that it was kind of born from the heart, so to speak. And actually, we, we'd both risen up through the rank, which was great, but it meant less hands-on time. Uh, so I think there was an element of wanting to see if we could still cut it from an art point of view, uh, try our handouts and new stuff as well, from a design point of view. Um, so, yeah, it was one of those things. It just felt like the, the right time and an opportunity was there for us to to try something new, knowing that, you know, whatever happened, we could, we could always try and go back to studio life if, uh, if we wanted to. Yeah, and, you know, you're right. The more senior you become, the more distant you become from the actual work being done. And you end up spending your time looking at spreadsheets and Gantt charts, which is not something you signed up to do. And you're like, hang on, I'm staring at a, 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 a spreadsheet and a Gantt chart at the same time. I don't remember how, how did this happen. Uh, and granted, that's more producer's work. But, you know, even when you're an art director, I say even you actually find yourself in that realm sometimes, even if you try to distance yourself. As far as I'm aware, not now I'm actually... But I think I'm right in saying that is a lot more management than actually getting the, the, the work done, or is that a sweeping generalisation? I think that basically the art director might want a big studio. Well, ours, uh, how I always thought of it was basically you're there to kind of ensure that the art team can do good work. Yeah. Uh, whether it's like briefs or scribbling on stuff to give direction, or you know making sure that. They have everything they need to be able to do their, their job, whether that's information or otherwise. Mm. I kind of always viewed that as, you know, getting the, making sure the vision is strong and uh, doing all the work involved in that and making sure that, you know, everyone has whatever it is they need to, to basically, so you can, you know, everyone can be firing on all, all, all cylinders. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very different thing. I think there's a, there's slight difficulties. People get more senior in kind of maintaining your, Art muscles, um, uh, yeah, but that's um, yeah. So the, it's um, in some ways like we still yeah, we still do lots of that stuff now. It's just much more immediate on a much uh, smaller smaller scale. I think the people who the team we've kind of assembled uh, with Polygon Treehouse and, and Rurki, the kind of contractors and freelancers we're working with, a lot of those are actually ex Sony as well. And so it's nice we have quite quite and obviously me and Tom have known each other for eons, so we have quite a good creative understanding. Um we don't tend to have creative disagreements that much. We tend to be on the on the same page and we can have I guess we get the gist of where each other's each other are going with things just, you know, from a, a built up shared experience uh, of kind of growing over time. Okay. Cool. Um so the next question then, uh, this one's quite nebulous and regular listeners will go, Oh no, Chris, it's question number three. Here it comes. Um, <laughs> but this is one I like to ask because I think it's an important one to ask. Uh, and I'm going to ask you as representatives of Polygon Treehouse, which clearly you are because you founded the development uh, studio is uh, what do you believe as creators of things? Is your biggest influences? What, what do you think you, you are gravitating towards more than anything? that keeps you like, oh, yeah, we keep on orbiting that thing. Don't know why, but you do. Is there anything you can pluck out for us and give us an example? Cool. So, <laughs> I know what. <laughs> so uh, I think, well, in terms of like Polygon Treehouse, the like adventure games, 
and that kind of golden era of LucasArts was, uh, and then, yeah, the other companies around that, uh, is something that is, uh, inspiration. And I think in terms of the diversity of the stories that they told and the kind of, uh, the subject matter in the world, it felt like there was kind of endless possibilities there, right? You could have a game set in space. It could be a pirate game. It could be a fantastical thing. It could be a, a very grounded, uh, story about humanity. There's a lot, you know, it just felt like it was a really powerful, uh, a powerful um, genre, and obviously one that we we really gravitated towards. So I think that kind of all that the kind of creativity and the storytelling around those things, I find a, a big inspiration. From the visual point of view, I'm always and actually it's probably because obviously when we we're certainly we did lots of we were chasing the kind of realism horse, and uh, now we're doing something that's much more stylized and and, and graphical. And growing up, I was always a big fan of. Uh, Hergé's work and Tintin and that, that kind of clean graphical style and the kind of eh, the economy and efficiency of the artwork. So that was probably something that's been lurking somewhere in my brain, waiting to kind of have a have a have a go at. Um, and then I guess other influences is you have people you work with that inspire you over the years, you know, for various different reasons, whether it's their pragmatism or their their strength or their, you know, their kind of, I guess, you know, artistic agility. There's, you know, you think you kind of, you build up, once there's any one thing, but you definitely, for me, I've kind of built up a, a number of different things that, uh, yeah, that inspire me and I'm guessing like drive my work. How about you, Tom? You've taken, you've taken everything, too. <laughs> uh, no, I'm it's one of those things, like you say, you kind of accumulate stuff. I think is talking about the graphical style. I think it's it's really interesting when I look back at some of my earlier influences. And we've talked about it on our blog. Like one of the games that really stood out to me in my younger years was Flashback, and I kind of hadn't really heard of it. My brother bought it home one day, and I, I played it, and I was just blown away just because it was like nothing else I'd ever played before. The movement, and I actually have a still above my kitchen door of the jungle bit, which is just so yeah. vibrant and green. Yeah. It's the vast majority of that palette, I grant you, is green. But then there's, it's just so beautifully done. Sorry, I'm it's amazing. No, it is amazing. And you look at what he's wearing, and it's kind of like, it's nothing to write home about at all, but it, it's done so well, and it's so yes. slick and crisp, that it's just, it really stood out. And I think there's elements of that in what we've tried to do in, in Rare Kid, in, is have this kind of clean, crisp palette, that's very graphical and, and appealing to people. Um, so yeah, these, these kind of things, they kind of go into your subconscious and then, you know, emerge in different, different forms. And they're also in that game, I think the story was quite compelling. You kind of got thrown into it. You didn't really know what was going on, but you wanted to help him, um, learn about his past and the journey and that stuff. I think I've, we've, we've both always been really interested in. So that kind of collision of narrative and, and art was a, a quite an obvious choice for us. No, that's a good shout. Um, you need to get to Titan to remember, remember that. But, uh, maybe yeah. we missed it several times for good reason. That's yeah, it was on, on Switch. I've been playing with my son. Yeah, yeah. I saw um, I saw something recently that really um, made me smile, which was I guess he feels like it's quite a, you know uh, pragmatic creative. There was a video of you know in another world. The same as this other game, same, I'd say. Yeah, same creator, yeah. There's a the scene where the car slides in at the start, and uh, there was a video of basically 
the reference footage that basically was a toy car he just like threw across the floor <laughs> until he got it right and then yeah. that, and I was like wow it, was, it just like brought a really big smile to my face I think like I yeah it's really interesting seeing behind the curtain of like some of the you know the games that really def, you know defined your enjoyment of games and how they're how they're created and created and the fact they were really created with people who had you know a lot less resources than we have now uh, it's really yeah really inspiring to see that stuff I do remember playing uh, Flashback on my Amiga, the 1200. I still got, although it's not really much of a Amiga anymore. There's another story for another time. Um, <laughs> it's been souped up to ridiculous proportions, and uh, it still works to this day, sitting over to my to my uh, right. And um, it, uh, yeah, I remember there's one bit where I could actually drop a transporter. And I went, well, if I drop that there, and I'll just go over here, then I won't have to go running all the way back. I'll just zip back and completely take out half the level. I was thinking, oh, I was the cleverest man alive. Turns out it's what you're supposed to do. But it's just... That's good design. It was an amazing design. Good design. Make you feel clever for working out something you wanted you to work out. You were meant to do, yeah. But I thought I was the brainiest man on the planet. Um, or, you know, anyway. So, well, that's great responses to that one. And like I said, can stump uh, developers that one. But uh, no, good, good job. But this next one definitely really does have people go, what? Oh, no. I didn't warn you that these questions do get harder as they go along. Um, just like in video games, really. Um, so here we go. Yeah, make to the next level. And this could be both a collective response or individually. I don't mind. What developer did most admire in the industry and why? Go on, Alex. No, you're going to say most of my so I really like the things the Miyazaki, the guy who does the um uh from software games. Uh yes. well, I don't really know much about like him or his working methods, just really like those games. They're kind of um I think I came to them quite late, like after they'd been out for a while. I think I tried Demon Souls, like really like initially and basically just didn't get it. No, no. And uh and found it like really uh really hard work and then I came back to them later and I just there's something about the storytelling. I think most people think of those games are these, you know, they're a, a test. And they are, but a lot of it is just you just play them differently from other games. Um and and once I got uh like drawn into those worlds I found one of the things with the studio we're very keen to do is like storytelling as gameplay and uh, you know within the world rather than cutscenes. I think those those games, all of them pretty much, Sekiro included, do a great job of letting you play the game and the, and you are telling the story, and uncovering the story and the story of the world as you go. So that's that would be my the one that immediately um, that that sprang up in my mind. And also, they feel quite different, but no one really does that and it feels quite um quite unique so back that one over to thomas <laughs> so <laughs> I'll I, the... the studio i would pick uh, is media molecule uh, i was to deal with planet and just done dreams dreams yeah yeah i think i just think they're amazing at what they do in terms of kind of pushing the boundaries of what you think is possible. Uh, and when you look back now, and it kind of seems obvious, but at the time, particularly like when Little Big Planet, when obviously we were at Sony as well, so we saw stuff in advance. It's just like, this is nuts. You're kind of making this in-game editor for people to make a game within your game. Like, it's crazy. And then yeah. see it come to life, and it's done so well and so beautifully without kind of compromising this, this studio's uh 
almost ethics in a way that they stayed small and creative and looked after their staff. Um, I think they're brilliant. And then to go on from that and go, okay, let's make dreams. Uh, I just think it's, it's phenomenal, phenomenal the way they set themselves these kind of lofty goals and then actually manage to achieve them. So yeah. I've got a lot of time for them. They, they push the boundaries for everyone else. So I think that's what's really cool about what they do. Trailblazers. No. Thank you. Yeah. Sid Mario Maker is another example um, of that kind of genre. If it is a genre, where okay, we get it. Video game creation is still quite difficult. Here's some really advanced tools for you to make stuff. Have have at it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I remember at the time, though, you know, actually, it doesn't need everyone to make a level, but if only one percent of players do, then we'll still have you know ten thousand levels or a hundred thousand, whatever the, the the kind of metrics were and you go, well, yeah that's pretty good, pretty yeah, good. yeah um but i love the lovely stories that they had for little big planet they had someone who in the community made levels that they were so impressed with that they eventually hired them like how cool is that you made a game and you know, it's just really nice and the fact that they were kind of aware enough to see what that person was doing and not go oh my god they're better than us whatever it's just like yeah, we'll employ them brilliant yeah yeah that's yeah, right it's just Feedback loop. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah, that mine. I do remember when Little Big Planet first came out, and some people were like, "I know, I'll remake the Banyan Tree level." No, no, don't do that. No, please don't. No one wants that. It's <laughs> from Jet Set Willy. No one, no, please don't. And they did, and it was very bad. But yeah. because you know, because that was made by a man with a diseased mind. But yes. <laughs> fun, fun fact. I actually yeah. made. There was a, you remember the TV adverts at the time where they they did them from the point of view of players who'd made levels. Yes. So there was one about two brothers who'd made uh, a level called Fart World. Nice. Uh, which I actually did. So I made that level and then went and recorded it. Made the advert. It's just lots of buttons and gas clouds that they bounced on. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, there you go. That's my, <laughs> it's still my highlight of my career. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it worked with Oddworld, didn't it? So, anyway. Um, last question of the first half. See, like, you made it. Well done. Uh, I have to ask this question because it's a podcast about video games. So here it is. What are you playing right now? So I'm playing uh, Final Fantasy VII Remaster. Uh, finding it a little hard. We Also, we've just finished playing... Um, Thimbleweed Park, the Thimbleweed Park team just dropped a new uh, free demo of their, their new engine. It's like a little um, a mini adventure with Dolores. So we, me and uh, we tend to basically take a laptop and plug it into the big TV in the lounge and we'll sit on the sofa and have some snacks and um, and play those together. And that was great. I'm a really big fan of, uh, of Thimbleweed Park and, and their stuff. Uh, yeah, Final Fantasy VII, I'm, I'm enjoying in in spurts. I find it a little bit... Um, I'm missing some of the turn-based stuff and finding a bit of a slog to get through, but that's probably also because we're reasonably busy, um, busy with work. And then I had a little dabble at, uh, I believe it's called the demo for Bravely Default 2, which is like, um, so I really liked Octopath Traveler. That was one of my favorite games of last year or the year before in terms of art style and the battle mechanics. I think this is, looks like it's from a similar stable. Uh, in terms of some of the arts, so I had a little dabble of that. So yeah, I tend to spread my net uh, quite wide. If I'm not enjoying something, I'll tend to just I give it a good go and then like not flog myself if I'm not having a good time. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. 
Yeah, so we've kind of got a lockdown bias going on in our households. There's kind of a lot of uh, switch stuff going on as a as a family. So we've got Animal Crossing playing late years old. So he's, well, there's great hilarity when we showed Alex my son's uh, house, which was the the messiest house he's ever seen. It was like the house of a deranged kind of mad woman who just <laughs> like get stuff and wouldn't be able to fit it in his bags and just like chuck it into the lawn outside the house. Because <laughs> saw Alex's kind of finely kept like the OCG house that he was like, oh, okay, you can, you can do things a different way. So that was quite good. Um, I mean, like he's recently come back to sleep with Smash Brothers, good fun, multiplayer. Um, but myself, I've actually been playing Fortnite, partly because it's actually a fun way to hang out with people when I can't hang out with people. Uh, and my, my son's also like really into it better than me, but, uh, I just enjoy that you can run around and, and be able to chat to people without immediately getting shot and owned. So I, I am impressed with what they've done with that franchise. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel you on the Animal Crossing thing. I find it extremely therapeutic. I just sort of zone out and there's no real stress until you talk about turnip prices. Then all of a sudden the stress returns. My son's full of that. There's another good one where we, he learned about the turnips and then went and bought lots of what he thought were turnips and had planted them. We were like, I think you can buy them today. We were like, no, no, I have, I have. Anyway, it turned out he just spent most of his money on some tulips. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were lovely tulips when they grew, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a little bit of a Got to read the fine print. <laughs> yeah. Life yeah. It was like in, uh, in Star Valley, he played for a bit as well, because we all loved that game in our house, and he, he got like a... Like, is it grenade? He got a grenade anyway, and like didn't know how to use it, and then ended up blowing up his mayonnaise maker. That was a that was a bad thing. <laughs> dark times. Dwellers dark times. Sadly, man. Let's see the funny side, but you know, great yeah. great power and all that. Cool. Well, there you go. First half done. Nicely done. Um, so we just move on to the second half, shall we? Let's do that. Let's delve yeah. deep into rookie. So, 
first question isn't a question, it's a request. We can't talk about Roki until we know what it is. Either of you, could you tell us in your own words, what is Roki? Um, so it's our take on updating the classic adventure game. Uh, it's a game about atmospheric exploration, uh, meeting misunderstood monsters, helping them with what's troubling them and unlocking paths deeper into the forest. But as well as this like fantastical adventure of forests and, and the wilderness and, and creatures, it's also got quite a, a human core. It's the story of dysfunctional families and of loss and of reconciliation. Uh, so it's kind of like dual threads. We really like the you know, the collision of the fantastical and, and the reality. And so I think people can enjoy it uh, on a number of levels. People will hopefully enjoy it for the you know, the, the kind of ex- exploration that puzzles the world's all 3D, so you can roam around as, as two way. But I think some of the, you know, the more introspective moments as well will hopefully, you know, lend some, well, heart. Yeah, I'd say in, it, in its kind of simplest form, it's like a young girl trying to find her brother who's been taken by a monster. Okay. We want to sound by it's the essence of the game. She is to go into the ancient wilderness to find out where he is and try and get him back. Just to be clear, it is not David Bowie. It's not David Bowie. It's <laughs> some of the kind of labyrinth vibes of almost uh, wishing him away. Yeah. But uh, there's no there's no dance magic dance. No, so. there isn't. But it's certainly not. We couldn't, couldn't get the right. <laughs> but, the, uh, but the game actually is the monster that spirits away your brother is actually Rurky. So like the film Jaws, the game is named after the, the monster. Um, but he's not a... Um, creature of pure evil is actually quite a lot to his story in the game as well so mm-hmm. yeah labyrinth is actually a really interesting point because a lot of the time she'll meet things and initially be kind of repulsed and then they'll end up helping her or you know she actually makes friends with all the goblins and stuff and i think that there's the, that kind of arc of what her expectations are or, or the viewers expectations and how they kind of turned on their heads a really interesting thing yeah yeah. So, kind of echoed in our game, not not directly, but influenced by. So, I mean, I've experienced Ricky, and it's definitely, I believe, one of the purest adventure games I've played in a long time. So, thank you for that. For focusing on delivering a story while also at the same time allowing the character some aid, the player agency in how things go and progress the thing, and they learn more from the characters and in the world they're in by doing that rather than simply passively watching it. And that's the fine balance that you have to achieve with adventure games because you can get that quite easily wrong. And the the puzzles become everything and to the point where the the, the story and and the world you're in becomes superfluous to the point where you can only see the code. Uh, Whereas on the other side it becomes too narrative and the, 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 the puzzles become you know, um, secondary and tertiary. And there's that fine balance. But uh, I think you've got it, personally. It's very hard to achieve, so well done. Thank um, you. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk about the interface. It sounds a bit grey and dry, but it has to be said, because uh, uh, when it comes to adventure games, they've all had their own unique take on interfaces. But with Roki, I played it with the controller, uh, with my, my Xbox One controller. I talked that to my to my PC, as I do, because the D-pad's great on that thing. Anyway, um, how have you found designing an interface for Rookie that relies on precise sort of object manipulation 
but without the reliance on the mouse being present. How have you found that? Is it? So I think we had like some, I guess importantly, we had some high level goals at the start mm. of the project because we knew like one of the first things when we found the studios, we knew we wanted to do our take on updating the classic adventure game. And so we had, we had some high level goals and part of that updating it is making it accessible to more people and, um, and reducing the amount of frustration involved in, in, in playing the game and it's, it's design UI included. Uh, also we, our background is in art. So we knew that we wanted to have as little screen clutter as, as possible. And actually you can, you can like play the game, uh, now you can, you can, yeah, you can play the game with, with mouse as well with mouse and, uh, and keyboard on, on, on Steam for the, um, well, when it's out. But so I think there's a number of things we did in terms of the UI. One was, um, everything is kind of context based and proximity based. So really you don't have an on-screen cursor, you will move around Tube uh, directly with the pad. And that was important for a number of reasons. One was there was a greater connection to the character. We're trying to tell this human story. So rather than you being divorced from the character and having a pointer and going, right, you go and walk over here. It's like, I am, I am walking over, I'm running over there my, myself. I am Tube. Um, and then, yeah, we found that uh, like the streamlining th- things in terms of like your, you know, your interactions with hotspots or interaction spots in the world. We all, always made them, them context based. And that's true in terms of the conversations with characters as well. So we don't, we have dialogue trees, I guess, but they're kind of hidden from the player. So that thing of like trawling through options becomes <laughs> a bit boring. I've already asked that one already. We don't have any of that. Uh, everything's context-based, based on where you are in the game and what you've done. So um, uh, we kind of want to kind of keep, still have all the complexity there, but we want to make the experience for the player quite streamlined. So that that UI and that kind of those systems didn't really pop the player out of the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. aware that they're playing a game. We want it to be streamlined so they've got yeah, nice, clear screen and uh and some of the kind of me- mechanics are like rubbing themselves in your face uh so you can you, know, you can enjoy enjoy the story um i'm probably gonna do a thing where i don't leave tom anything to say again but there's uh, <laughs> the um <laughs> but the other thing we do as well so a lot of stuff we've done in terms of you know, your inventory and finessing how inventory objects uh use in the in the game so we have a lot of i guess there's a lot of kind of like uh player assist stuff that's hidden in there so we've got like sliders that the player can fiddle with for adjusting like when you, you, know, you open up your inventory and you can drag objects down on things in the world we actually make the things that you can drag on we've made sticky which is something we were inspired by from from destiny's ui so i'll kind of uh, in terms of how you know items will slow when you get near boxes, so we've got kind of sticky, uh, sticky interactions, I think we call them. And so there's a lot of stuff there, and just making sure that people can play the game with it. You know, however people want to play, they 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 can. Um, and yeah, there's I can I can go on, I can go on. There's yeah. there's it's just there's really because I know it's coming out on the Switch, uh, so that's where I'm coming from. There's a lot of people going to have to use, uh, they play the game with uh, a controller of some sort. And uh, that's been both successful and unsuccessful. It varies in how people have implemented it over the years. And it's been going for quite, quite some time. I mean, I know they re-released 
uh, Monkey Island on the Xbox 360 many years ago, and that was, you know, people thought, how's this going to work with a controller? But it, it did to a point, and it was a start, and then it sort of then flourished, and people have now got to grips. But this, what you've done with Verki, you've taken it places that there's a lot hidden going on, and there's a lot of information that previously was delivered to the player, but on reflection, wasn't needed, didn't need to know. And it was just, you just basically stripped that out and go, let's just get to. And again, it's going back to what I was saying earlier, the balance between narrative and puzzle creation, world creation, delivering, and also assuming a lot in the player that they do have some intellect. <laughs> you know, they can figure this out. It's okay. You know, you don't have to spoon feed everyone. It's fine. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. You never underestimate how kind of games literate people yeah. are and like demoing the game and stuff is kind of really informative on that front that you could people just pick up and play and pretend to mash the buttons see what they can do and kind of yeah if, if they're familiar with games they tend to yeah. work out and so actually anything you're putting in place to stop them just exploring yeah. is frustrating so it was a very conscious decision to try to strip away some of those some of those layers uh and actually, from a design point of view, knowing that we have the stick in the sand of wanting to use a controller, a lot of the other things kind of fell off from that. So you, so you talked about learning about things by kind of player agency, by interacting with things. And that, again, was a very conscious decision. Originally, we had, you know, that Tuve might go into a new scene and make a comment, and it all felt like, yeah, that's cool. It'll give the player some info. But actually, because it was done passively, it's like, you're kind of telling me stuff, which is fine but it's not as cool as like here's something hidden in the ground go and interact with it and then you can have exactly the same text but the players found that thing so they feel like they've earned it more um and so you kind of you layer that stuff up it actually can become quite impactful i want to talk about the world that Rurki uh set in it's really fantastical in my view one of the things that struck me is uh, toby is running down a path and this mushroom just shrank. It made a little squeaky sound and then shrank. Why would a mushroom do that? That's strange. And then I kept on running and then she countered a, a troll and stuff. Uh, who was not going to eat her, but in fact was actually having a bit of a problem. Uh, that you eventually had to solve, uh, for, for, for reasons. Um, I just want to, it's, it is very fantastical. Yet Toby appears from our world, contemporary times. Cause she's having yeah. a bag. It's a bright red bag. She's dressed in this... I mean, she, the, the dress is not particularly period, but the bag she's wearing has got a zipper on it. Wait. Why has she got a zipper? Oh. Hmm. And she, she, she appears for me from our world, from our reality. Why? Why did you do that? So I think there's a few reasons there. So we've not been, like, incredibly specific with the date, but you're right. It's, no. it's, it's modern. She's, like, a, a, a modern girl. Um, I think we wanted to... We were really interested in, in kind of that blurring of the line between realities that often they overlap and things can be just kind of hidden around the corner or be visible to those who really want to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, like, it's part of the game, Tuve ultimately can kind of cross between the worlds a little bit uh, and start to see things because she's been touched by magic a bit or maybe her family's a bit special. So they're kind of these seeds of the story that, that we sow. Um, and ultimately, I think it was the, the thing that really interested us was obviously the inspirations came from Scandinavian folklore. Um, it was the idea of exploring some of those stories a, a bit more, um, from the point of view of a child as well, 
as a kind of different angle on, on meeting some of these creatures and the fact that she might not have the same prejudices against them, that, that we could look through it with some fresh eyes. And that gave us a, a lot in terms of how she actually talks to them, how they talk to her, the fact that she's a young girl and that she's actually quite brave. I mean, there, there are lots of different levels there that we're able to play on that I think create quite a fresh experience uh, and bring the world to life a bit. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, yes, it's a fascinating sort of development of um, uh, uh, contrasting worlds, and that. And I think you're right in that Toby's actors, your eyes are the players, and say, "This, this is weird." And she's, Toby's going, "Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what, this, this make, none of this makes any sense. I'm too old for this. I should be seeing things." She says that. You know, I'm too old for this nonsense. I think we're not playing our own trumpets, but give ourselves a moment of uh, achievement. I think there's a, a number of people have said that actually, in terms of like a, a video game child, like that she's one of their their favourites they can think of. Like I think there's a, a tendency for children in video games to be a little bit annoying or whiny, and um, and it was it wasn't something that we properly foolishly wasn't something we were worried about at all <laughs> until people said, oh yeah, that kids yeah. in they can be sarcastic they can be jaded even if they're like very young it's like if, you know they, just, they can still be like really <laughs> that's yeah. basically that's, that's Toby's sort of point of view like I'm too old for this <laughs> and that's lovely it was really it just made me smile looking at this game yeah you probably are you're not seeing things something weird has happened here so the history of uh, adventure games has been uh, plotted out, and uh, there was a, definitely a low point with uh, Gabriel Knight and the infamous cat hair puzzle, which, look it up, um, <laughs> it was very bad. And that's where it hit low point. And obviously things turned around when Wizard Eye came about and said, actually, we can we can do better, and they did. And then things managed to flourish again, and adventure games came back, um, thankfully. Um, but one of the blights uh, of things is actually uh, advertising to the player that they should be looking at something. They should. This is an important thing, without bashing them over the head with it. Uh, historically, it was the hunt for the interactive object game, or hunt the pixel game, which none of us like. What have you done with Rookie to, to avoid those traps without, you know, while being subtle? I mean, I've I've noticed things, but if you could. To yeah, what you've done to make sure that you're not being obvious. I think it's a good. It's a very good question. I think there are a few things. And we just obviously talked about the desire to have it on a controller. And one of the things that that meant immediately was you remove that layer of gameplay that is kind of pixel hunting because you can't just move your cursor all over the screen. So it meant that everything you interact with has to be accessible by two bay. Um, so like just from a pragmatic point of view, that slightly changed how we looked at design. Um, but there were kind of a couple of other pillars that we wanted to do in terms of how we kind of imagined our take on adventure games. So one was that it wasn't just hard for the sake of being hard. We felt actually when we still feel that the story is compelling, we want people to experience that to the full. So we want people to get through the game. Um, so we deliberately not tried to just make stuff crazily hard. Um, and actually have layers there so that there are challenges, but that we try and help the player as well by giving them prompts or 
you know, it's a few things. So one of the things in the demo, you start off in this tree with loads of eyes, and that's actually a character you can revisit, and they'll slowly give you help on certain things that, that might be um, uh, uncovering in the world around you. And the other device we've got is a, a journal that Tuve carries around with her that she makes notes in. Um, and that actually works really well for a couple of points. One is we can kind of highlight design things to remind the player. Um, and the other thing is kind of a, another layer of her personality that's perhaps slightly more honest and open about her fears. So that's quite a nice counterpoint to how she actually is when she's running around in the world. Um, so kind of those things combined with the fact that all the objects we tend to have in the world feel like they belong there. We don't just chuck in something that's, you know, might help create a puzzle, but feels out of place. So I like to think there's a very logical step to the problem solving as long as you find the, the elements. Um, so kind of those things combined. And then like the, I guess the final layer on top of that is that we've tried to make sure there are multiple things you can be doing. So you're not just stuck in this linear path of like, I don't know what to do. It's frustrating. I can't progress. I'm done. It's actually like, well, you've got some bits for here. Okay. You can maybe sit on that a bit, but you can go and explore elsewhere as well. And then slowly actually start to, to solve a lot of the layers. Um, and actually, I think it's quite clear where you need to go in, in the game because of this kind of bigger narrative. It's quite epic. So we don't actually have to be very discreet about the things you're trying to find. They're pretty big and obvious in terms of what Tuve needs to do. So I hope all those things combined have actually, you know, helped create quite a satisfying gameplay experience. Yeah, I find, yeah sorry, um, just found the idea of you don't have to solve the solution the solution of the problem isn't in the screen you're in. It might be on several areas away from where you're standing. You can't solve it now. You can go elsewhere and explore something, and then it encourages the player to see more of the world. Sorry. Yeah, it's, we want them to explore, and there's actually a fast travel system you unlock so that you can explore quicker. And mm. so we're very mindful of like the gameplay loop we want them to have, and, and have tried to make that as satisfying as possible. Alex, what were you, you going to say? Uh, no, I was just saying, like, um, as, I guess the other things that we do to help, as well, as well as like, you know, the usual visual things of leading the player's eye in terms of placing, you know, placing objects. We also have, you know, game is in 3D. We can do quite a lot of stuff with motion as well, uh, in terms of drawing the eye. And also the other thing we do is when, like, do they enter the vicinity of something she can interact with? The context, you know, the context button prompt will come up and it will, will highlight as well. So, um, yeah, we really didn't want any, I mean, we don't have a cursor anyway, but we really like the pixel hunting stuff was like, okay, that was top of the list of things to throw in the bin. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to just sign off the last question now with something that, um, struck me that I really want to delve into is the characters that you encountered, that I've encountered in, in, in the demo for, for, for uh, Rurki. Um, for me, they're, all the characters you encountered, the non, you know, outside Tove, of course, are odd. <laughs> um, of course, the one with the mini owl, the eyes, that has, seems to be very old and wise, but has an agenda. Yeah. Uh, and you sees Tove as a tool, and is open about that, and sort of says, yeah, you'll do. <laughs> uh, and that's interesting. But the, the troll, just like, this is annoying. Could you fix this? And that was really quite, you know, 
jarring. But I think the, there's a little character you encounter. I won't say where or what, but uh, you know, at one point when it starts speaking, Toby's reaction is wonderful, and she says, "Oh no, somebody else is talking to me now." <laughs> Could you please stop talking to me? Talking, you know. Um, I just want to ask all the people, all these creatures. They they're all very odd. They're all just you know slightly ajar from you know the norm. Are they designed in such a way? Are they created in such a way or developed in such a way to reflect the world they're in? And is it a kind of like part of the tapestry of the world you created? Do you think? Uh, so I think, yeah, I think that the, what we've always tried to do is um, there's like there is delight in the unexpected, right? If things are as you as you kind of expected them, um, like yeah, it's not um, yeah, not not so exciting. So with all the all the characters in terms in terms of like their actual personality or in terms of their visual design or how they move, we always try and have something that uh, is unexpected and will. Will uh, uh, will delight the player, and in the, there are there is a real wide, wide range of, of creatures and monsters you encounter. And you know, if you say about you know you're going and meeting these misunderstood monsters, and like some of them are more friendly than others. Some of them are, are, are pretty horrifying. We shared some like sketches and like animation tests like amongst the team of one of the creatures later in the game, who is more of a like they're kind of almost trapped by a, a curse and they are quite angry, <laughs> and they were like. Oh, that looks like horrifying. And so some of them are, are, um, are, are pretty scary, but we, they're always, there's always a reason, a reason why. And sometimes those reasons are expected. Sometimes they're, they're unexpected. But yeah, the, I think the core thing we try and do with all the creatures that you meet is have some element of the unknown, the unexpected and sub- subverting what you may expect when you are speaking to them, like whether it's their, yeah, their personality or their animation or what they look like. Um, that was quite important for us. Um, yeah, and, and when we when we were looking at what, what the setting was going to be for our adventure game, we looked at Scandinavian folklore. The thing that we fell in love with was it, it was all really weird. Uh, it was like, this is odd. There's a big frog making jumpers out of people's beards back <laughs> into the lake. There's, you know, the, the, and the, 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 the stuff that felt that we were like, wow, this is, feels really fresh and, and, and odd. And that there is something that is intrinsically like to us very strange about those tales that we uh found awesome <laughs> the, the, the odd, yeah, celebrates the odd i think yeah yeah celebrate the odd what a wonderful way to sign off that question it, it is there's nothing wrong with being you know some it's it's, it's surrealism which isn't surrealism it's something more it's far more uh, subtle than that but the something to slightly off kilter is, is nothing wrong with that because it makes you reflect on what is kilter. Mm. If that's a phrase. Um, so yeah. Well, um, Roki by uh, Polygon Treehouse. It's, sorry, before I go into that, it's a, it's a, the name of the, the your company. Where did that come from? I love asking this question because it's a painful uh, place. <laughs> was, can we come up with a name we like? Doesn't exist already. Uh, uh, and then yeah, you go through the options. So. Right. I love the weird afternoon. Like, is this good? This is really good. No, it's not. It's terrible. It's terrible. And then I, we basically got something that that survived until the next day, and still we quite liked. So yeah. that's from. I think we liked as well. Like the whole treehouse aspect was yeah. kind of. I think uh, 
tied into being kids and a sense of play and adventure. So that was kind of the angle we were we were coming from. Yeah, it could have been Orange Pig, you know. <laughs> could have been Orange. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was on the short list. Random color, random creature. <laughs> <laughs> It'll make that a subsidiary of the company. Yellow Eagle. Okay. <laughs> Don't give it away. <laughs> trademark leaks. But uh, it's coming out on uh, Windows PC and Nintendo Switch, is that correct? Yep. All right. Yeah, Steam, Steam and Switch, yeah. Steam and Switch. But it is just Windows PC. Is it any other? Uh, that'll be iOS. Mac as well and, and iOS as well, is it? Or... Yeah, it'll be Mac. Yeah. Nice. Well, I can't thank you enough, gentlemen, for being on the show. Being wonderful guests. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah. I hope you got something out of this. I know I did. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure the audience did too. Um, and you're more than welcome to come back to talk about your next project, whatever that may be, because we have had return guests and we will be here. I can assure you. There's been issues with people coming, oh, I made a new game five years later. And, oh, yeah, you can come back. Yeah. So it's great because what happens is you don't ask, you don't answer the first questions. <laughs> you've answered them already <laughs> so um, yeah and I'm not joking it has happened in fact two weeks ago we had a return guest so yeah it's great but uh, yeah in the meantime thank you very very much thank you yeah great chat you have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast part of the Cane and Rinse collective support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs>